Welcome to the Voyage Podcast, a show that traverses the oceans of myth and legend through the lens of Catholic theology and philosophy. Come aboard as we set sail in pursuit of the heroic life and Christian virtue with your hosts, Mike Schramm and Jacob Claddy. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the Voyage Podcast, a production of Voyage Comics. I'm your host, Mike. And I'm Jacob. And we're going to be talking about the intersection between mythology, uh, specifically Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, and the Bible and Christian spirituality. So let's go. Uh, First thing, I'm going to do a little bit of a background with Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell, he has been very well known and and even more influential, even though he's not necessarily cited or well known. And one of the biggest examples where his influence has been felt in probably the last five to ten years has been with the TV show Rick and Morty, um, especially with the creator of that show, Dan Harmon. So a lot of people have gone into the writing process of Dan Harmon, and they've talked about all the shows that he's made and how good of a storyteller, a story constructor he is in his shows, not just Rick and Morty, but also in Community. And one of the things that they've seen in his process or in his um, construction process is that it is modeled after Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. And so there again, you know, nobody's talking about necessarily that, oh, this is a Joseph Campbell thing, or they're always talking about, but that is a huge influence that we see. And so who is Joseph Campbell? Is he was a um, psychologist, anthropologist from the, uh, probably the most um, well-known or most of his work was produced in the 70s and 80s. His biggest book is called The Hero of a Thousand Faces, where this monomyth or hero's journey was actually put down and published. Um, But then he also had a popular PBS series called The Power of Myth, which was a book as well. And it's all kind of centered around the same idea, which is in studying all of the different ancient mythologies uh, in world history, is that even though they have all these different characters, all these different stories, they all kind of followed a very similar pattern, or or the big characters followed a very similar pattern. And this is what he called the monomyth or the hero's journey. Uh, But again, a little bit more about his background. So one of the things that's kind of important for this conversation is that even though he was often identified as an agnostic, even towards the end of his life, uh, there are some parts of his biography that he was actually born and raised in a Catholic family with a Catholic background. And there's even been speculation. And I'm not going to try to like prove these stories or, you know, go into all the merits of these stories, but that he even returned to the church. And actually, one of the reasons why he left the church was precisely because he perceived that the church had gone away from this sort of mythic structure that he saw, again, this was part of his anthropology, part of what he saw ingrained in humanity. And so he saw the church going away from it as actually a betrayal of who the church was. And like I said, um, there's been some apocryphal, maybe stories, not, not necessarily confirmed stories, that he did return to that church before he died. And we can have um, the, some, the links to those articles that talk about that in the show notes. But uh, like I said, it um, wasn't like a reported news story. I don't know if he had a Catholic funeral or anything like that. Do you know or have you heard a, a little bit about Joseph Campbell or Jacob? Um, so that was, that was Mike's monologue. Yeah. And uh, get used to that, folks. Uh, <laughs> Mike, Mike he, he's like a, a dog who, who gets a bone and he just keeps chewing. I remember, yeah, I remember hearing of Joseph Campbell. My introduction to Joseph Campbell was through Star Wars. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's that's the other one that I didn't even talk about. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you know, famously, at least if you're a geek, um, George Lucas was a huge fan of Joseph Campbell and basically used his monomyth concept in order to create uh, the first Star Wars trilogy. My copy of... Hero of a Thousand Faces has Luke Skywalker on it. Oh, so. does it? No kidding. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm assuming this is like a, a publishing after, you know, people recognized all that. So, mm. Well, and, and, you know, he actually would reach out to um, Campbell and get notes on his script and whatnot. It's another apocryphal story, I guess. So I, I think, I don't know, I, is that enough in terms of, I feel like that's a, at least enough background in terms of Joseph Campbell before we can actually start to talk about what is the hero's journey. And yeah, just like you had a little bit of familiarity, what, what are, 
besides seeing it maybe played out, you mentioned Star Wars. Um, where do we kind of see the, the hero's journey? Uh, I mean, the hero's journey is the reason why it's become such a common concept is because it's it's so universal. All Joseph Campbell did was kind of define something that already existed, or at least that's how he viewed what he was doing. And um, so mm-hmm. if you, you see it in pretty much every story, <laughs> like ever, right? Like uh, uh, the idea, I don't know if, if I'm giving too much away, you know, spoiler alert on, on what the hero's journey is, but you, you got a person, he, he's given a calling, he goes out into the wilderness or, or whatever challenge he has to face, and he comes back and he rewards uh, his community. Um, and so so maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but that's that is the basic of everything. Um, so well, and that's just it is why why did he recognize that as the basic structure of stories? Like you said, it's the basic structure of pretty much everything of life in general. But what we're going to kind of explore is why is that the case? Why is this the structure that we see in all of humanity? And maybe there's something more behind that. Maybe there's something, you know, even theological behind that. And not just like putting a God stamp on it, but saying that in the same way that all of these stories are a reflection of us, maybe they're a reflection of us because we reflect something too. That's deep, bro. Well, we just, yeah, we're just getting started, right? <laughs> so, Let's so, go. We, so the hero's journey, like, what is it? it it's like, like Jacob said, it's broken up into three main stages. And the first stage is the departure. The hero leaves the familiar world behind. Uh, and then that's broken down into five other kind of subsets or substages. Uh, but then the next big stage is the initiation. And this is kind of the main chunk of the story. This is the body of the story where um, most of the transformation of that hero takes place. And then you finally have the third and final main stage, which is the return. The hero returns to the familiar world. And that's actually, even though so much time and so much energy and so much action is spent on the initiation, that return plays an essential function to the story. And not just because it's resolved and everybody lived happily ever after, but as we'll see, it's an important part of the the hero, him or herself. It's not just like, oh, we needed to, we the viewer, or we the the um, reader needed to see a happy ending, and that there again, that's going to kind of tie into that theological component that we'll go through. But uh, and and Jacob, as we're going through too, like, you know, we'll we'll kind of talk about the the sub stages and stuff, but if as we think of examples that pop up. So, you know, you mentioned Star Wars before. Um, I mentioned not so much like specific examples of like, when did this happen in this episode or or with this person? But as we kind of recognize those as we're going through them, maybe that will kind of help our our viewer too or listener um, kind of see like, oh, I've seen this before. I, I know where this happens. So underneath the departure. So right going back to that first stage, you first have the call to adventure, right? And it has to be a call from without it has to be something outside of the hero outside of the main character that is calling to you know again whatever this adventure is not it can even be a relatively mundane adventure it can't just be some some kid i i've decided i want to go to art school (laughs) it has to be it has to be uh someone forcing someone to get outside the comfort zone it's not a personal pursuit well it's it's personal right but it still has to be um you know, even, even the example of the person going to art school, like assuming that someone or something is calling him or her to that, right? That it's, it pulls you out of yourself. And that's maybe the bigger thing is the call to adventure has to be outside of yourself. Right. And that's an essential part of being the hero is that it's not just internal, even though as we'll see, that's where the biggest changes are going to happen. Uh, but then after that, so there's the call to adventure and then there's the refusal of the call. And again, Campbell doesn't put this in here. Like he, he doesn't treat this structure lightly that he has to have a refusal. Um, there has to be some, cause that tells you who the hero is at first, right? This is how we, as the, the reader of the story can recognize the change is that we have this refusal and we're going to see that idea of the refusal. It's actually going to return. It's going to come up later in our, in the monomyth, in the hero's journey. Then we have the supernatural aid. 
which, and yeah, this is where I, I have to kind of give the disclaimer. This is not a Lord of the Rings podcast. And yet, you know, if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, you can like, you can see, maybe that's, maybe that's one of the best, um, where you can see the clearest examples, but that's because the guy who wrote them was pretty into mythology. I don't know if you'd heard that before, Jacob, but, uh, the guy who wrote the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, Mike, Mike, <laughs> these always become Lord of the Rings. Yeah, podcasts. Everything becomes all, all, all of these types, uh, everything becomes a Lord of the Rings podcast. In, in it's that. Lord of the Rings all the way down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm okay with that because I am in fact an avid fan. Surprise. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and here again, you know, if you want to maybe use the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings as an example, like Supernatural Aid, I mean, Gandalf is a pretty good example of, of something like that. Uh, and then crossing that first threshold here again, and, and I know I've already given the disclaimer, but this is where uh, I can think of that very specific line where Sam says, this is the farthest I've ever traveled outside the Shire. You know, I haven't gone any further before. And that is a very real threshold that we as the reader get to experience, or we as the viewer. And then the last one of the departure is called The Belly of the Whale. And this one is a, it's a reference to the story of Jonah, the biblical story of Jonah. So that's kind of one of our first biblical connections, but it, it has a it has a, a wider meaning or a wider connection, um, especially when you consider like the whole kind of structure of Jonah, that it was in many ways, it was made mythologically that the story of Jonah, the biblical story was meant to kind of follow the same mythological structure. And that has its own significance, not only in how we're supposed to read the old Testament or how we're supposed to read the Bible, but even the fact that it was directly alluded to by Jesus for a very important reason as well. So that's our, our that's the end of the departure is that belly of the whale substage. And that kind of takes us to the initiation where the, the hero learns to navigate the unfamiliar world. And so the first substage of initiation is the road of trials. And this is where, again, these play an important part in the story, even though it's not the, it's not the main boss, it's not the main bad guy, but it's all the kind of side quests that the hero has to go through because that's what will build him or her up in order to complete that climactic battle in order to solve that big problem. And so you need this road of trials along the way, not just because it makes the story longer, not just because it, you know, provide, it creates more content or provides more content for the person or fills out the character more, but because that's actually where the biggest transformation will take place. And then you have the meeting with the goddess. Uh, and what's interesting is in Campbell's book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, he references the assumption of Mary here. So he even sees this connection between the, whether it's the Christian liturgy or Christian history or Christian tradition and his monomythic structure. And this um, has an important part for the characters too, because it's not just giving the aid, it's not just giving the, the guidance, but that again, just like the call had to be something outside of them, just like the, the supernatural aid had to be something above them, it's a meeting with the goddess because it's a character who's above our hero. And so it, it moves that uh, character along or moves the hero along. And then the next one, which is maybe a little, oh, go ahead. No, this is, this is like the, uh, the great fairy in Legend of Zelda, folks. Okay. So if, if you need another reference, you know, the wah, 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 you know, like that, that lady, you know, go for the master sword. There it is. Joseph see, Campbell. He's in video see, games too. So, and I wasn't going to mention Galadriel, but now I have, but uh, there's another <laughs> there again. It's like, I keep telling myself this isn't, but it, I, I unfortunately, that's where my mind immediately goes as well. Um, then you have woman as the yeah, temptress. Don't fight it, Mike. Don't, don't fight, yeah. don't fight Tolkien. You know? And, and this is, you know, it's becoming more and more controversial to have this identification as the woman as the temptress. Obviously it doesn't even have to be a, an actual woman in the story. Um, but there's this temptation element to it. And, you know, again, there it's somewhat controversial, but this is where the kind of mythological portrayal of even the Adam and Eve story, like why it has the structure the way that it does. It's not just that it is a 
misogynistic view of the world. And again, biblical scholars will tell you that like the Adam and Eve story, whether it's the creation of Adam and Eve or Eve from Adam or the temptation, like it, misogyny was not the goal or that was not the point, but there was a deeper mythological connection. Um, I think that C.S. Lewis uh, had some comments on this and I forget if this is, what book is this out of? I don't know. It's been a while since I've revisited a lot of C.S. Lewis's stuff, but um, he talks about, uh, I don't think he uses a language archetype. Maybe he does, but he refers to the idea that there is masculine and feminine as a concept. And then when we refer to mountains as masculine or, or flowers as feminine, I forget the exact examples he uses, we're not just... We're not just applying uh, some kind of subjective reality to it. We're actually tapping into the truth that mountains are, in fact, properly understood as the, uh, a manifestation of the masculine. And that uh, flowers are properly understood as a manifestation of the feminine kind of thing. Um, well, even and, and, the male body or the, the um, body of a human male and the body of a human female it's not something imposed. It's something that reflects a deeper, you know, more abstract masculinity or femininity. That's right. And if you want to know exactly how that is, you're going to have to look for a more adult themed show kids. Um, but, uh, no. So, so this idea that the temptress is a, a temptress, you know, in theory, it doesn't have to be a female character in theory. But what I would say is that whatever, persona is manifesting the temptress is manifesting what is going to be considered an archetypical kind of feminine quality that's vital it's vital uh to drive the archetypically masculine quality for adventure right well so yeah well yeah no i i was just thinking too like this is why, and, and I'm not by any means a, a scholar in Shakespeare, but doesn't it seem like, if you're familiar with the play Othello, Iago, who's kind of like the primary, like, you know, sneaky, like, bad guy, like, he, he brings a lot of tempting elements into the story. It feels like if you watch it depicted in many plays, he is kind of depicted, even though it's always a guy, it's always a man, a male character, but it's, he's tries to come off as somewhat feminine or, or um, you know, does that make sense? Or I, I, we haven't talked about Othello before, but that's another kind of story element that I hadn't considered. No, I think that to makes total sense. Uh, ultimately, and this is probably going to take a while for people, maybe some people to wrap their head around, right? Um, the, the archetypical feminine and the archetypical masculine um, are ever-present realities, uh, yin and yang, right? Uh, if you want to bring in like the Chinese way of describing it. Um, and you know, and any psychologist will tell you that any human being has both of these qualities manifest within them. And if you are playing into the, uh, you know, a, a not outward intense, but a kind of uh, hidden intent what you're playing into is is the feminine and if you're being bold and brash and outspoken you're in making your intentions quite clear you're playing into the masculine um and that's i hope we don't have to just like apologize for that <laughs> for every, every well and that's well but here's the thing too is like we're not saying oh this is better this way or we're trying to impose even this viewpoint we're just this is at least whether you agree with it or not this is at least how it's been recognized or how people have perceived it for most of mythology most of storytelling most of human history now a, a person could argue that like people are wrong in thinking this or this was backwards or this was primitive or whatever. And we're not even, like you said, we're not trying to apologize in the sense of defend it. We're just presenting it as, Hey, this is how, this is where this comes from. And, you know and, I mean? uh, I think this, <laughs> I'm going to have a lot more fun if, uh, you know, we, we can just accept those terms as a kind of default moving forward. Um, and not kind of bring, you know, kind of modern politics into it. Don't you agree, Mike, that we're, we're going to take well, these yeah, ideas and... on their face 
uh, as we've inherited. And that's all we're right. And- we're still just presenting this is Joseph Campbell's idea anyway. I mean, nobody has to be married to it either, you know? So, I mean, either way, like whether, whether the person wants to, or whether I, I particularly think that obviously so much of what Campbell has said is very insightful, but I'm not beholden to anything and everything that he says either. Neither are you, but neither are we, no, neither do we, do we have to be completely reactive to it and just dismiss it out of hand because that's not the, the culture that we have been, you know, we grow up with or whatever. Yeah. But you, you mentioned something, you've mentioned the word archetype a couple of times. And I think that's actually really important because so that, that idea, not again, archetypes have been around for ever since we've been telling stories, but another really important figure for recognizing the role of archetypes in human mythology, human um, psychology, human storytelling is Carl Jung who was a very big influence on Joseph Campbell. And so there's another kind of connection that you, you've sort of brought up when you talk about, oh, the, this, this archetype of this figure. And that's actually um, in, in later episodes, that's something that I want to explore more is different archetypes and how, they, how they play out in different biblical stories, but then also in obviously our ancient mythology, but then our modern mythology, you know, whether it's comic books, um, movies, you know, things like that. But we sh- we got to keep going. Uh, sure. We have our atonement with the Father, or you you'll sometimes hear it as atonement with the Creator. Again, originally in Campbell's, it was atonement with the Father, and I think that's actually more appropriate because it's a more relational term than just a Creator. Uh, but you have that scene as part of the initiation, which there again, you're, the hero isn't just coming to terms with something greater than him, right? The father is always representative as greater than the son, whether it's a divine father father figure like a mentor or the biological father but there has to be this atonement um, and it's an essential part of the hero's development and it's not just he has to conquer something right even though you see that in uh, i think of uh, oedipus especially the oedipus rex um, play or, or kind of myth or whatever where it's like it takes that atonement with the father that um it takes it to its extreme right sure yeah absolutely to such a degree and then uh, the, the next one is apotheosis, which that's actually going to be something, a theme that's going to come up, the idea of theosis, divinization. That's going to be a huge theme in so much of what we talk about. Um, but apotheosis will be, uh, that's that sort of like when, that's kind of the, the, clim- the climax of the story. That's when the hero has to go beyond him or herself and they have to achieve this goal, achieve this end. This is not climax. This is climax like what you were taught in uh, high school English, right? This is this is the peak of the story where something changes, and then the fallout of it carries through to the the final stages, right? Not yeah, not so the this, end of the movie, folks. There again, and and you know, for better or worse, because we've gotten so used to this story structure, even when you have movies uh, which try to invert it or turn it on its head, whether it's the timing of the movie or the way that different events are presented to you, they're still dependent on this structure, even when they try to switch things around, which we didn't really talk about at the beginning of this, but the some of these um, events in the hero's journey, they don't they don't have to be as concrete. They don't have to fit this order as closely like, oh, the um, woman as temptress always comes before atonement of the father or something like that, or the belly of the whale always comes after the crossing of the first first threshold. Now, in general, they do kind of follow this pattern, um, but there is, I think, some flexibility. So, you know, you brought up the, uh, and, and yeah, in your high school English, English class, you learn about the structure of a plot and you have like the, exposition and then you have the climax and it's they always do it with a mountain right and it's at the top of the mountain at the top of a mountain that kind of makes sense in terms of yeah apotheosis or the you know meeting the goal or uniting yourself too i mean where were the gods always depicted in mythology they were always on the top of a mountain where did ancient peoples build their temples where did moses where did moses get the ten commandments moses had the yeah the The apotheosis and where did so much of jesus's ministry happen you know you have the transfiguration which there again this um joseph campbell gave a really famous sermon a really famous sermon Uh, and it was and it was a sermon on uh, that was sermon on uh on a mount right and and you know what's interesting too is um 
it's that's where he gives the our father that that's so really the sermon on the mount isn't even so much like jesus's that's his invitation to everybody all the hearers all the listeners right to experience that same thing but but yeah you mentioned um mentioned moses and again all uh the transfiguration is actually what campbell talks about in hero of a thousand faces is uh as part of the apotheosis but even in the story of jesus we have the uh crucifixion which was on mount calvary or the hill of calvary or or golgotha um and then we have the ascension of jesus on mount bethany and so we have all of these you know again all these kind of climaxes in the ministry of jesus happening in this specific place and not to keep plugging future episodes but we're going to have an episode totally devoted to the theology of the mountain or the mythology of the mountain or the symbol of the mountain and the role that it has. And so that will be something where we're actually going to spend a lot of time just talking about this one structure. Jacob mentioned earlier how, you know, in mythology and in ancient cultures, the mountain had a specific, uh, it was, it was gendered, right? It was, it almost had a characteristic about itself of it was representative of the masculine and why that's significant like i said ancient people ancient cultures storytelling things like that nailed it so now we're gonna what, what comes next mike we've got the apotheosis so then after that we have the ultimate boon which is kind of our transition from this climax point to the resolution of the story because this is where you know, the, the hero conquered this final problem or this big problem, reached outside of him or herself. And this is where, yeah, like you were saying, the, the prize has kind of been won or the, the, uh, the reward is kind of being recognized or realized. And that will take us to our third stage, our last stage, which is called the return. And the return is the hero returns to the familiar world. But what's interesting is Campbell has to include a refusal of the return just like he had a refusal of the call there's a refusal of the t- return because the whole point of this hero's journey wasn't just the hero conquering the problem or solving the problem outside of him or herself it's that the hero was changed internally and that's where the refusal comes in because when you've gone through this change you don't feel like you can go back to what who you once were you feel like going back to that place you're going back to who you once were and you're not that person anymore and so that's where that refusal will oftentimes come they they can't go back uh then they have the the magic flight which you know you probably recognize this in in a lot of whether it's stories you read or movies you watch you know how the when the person has to cover this huge amount of space to get to wherever the problem is or wherever they need to solve it but then they always have to go back but they don't spend as much time going back. It always seems like they get back way easier than they got there, even though it was the same amount of distance. Sometimes there's even this, like they have to cross the same river or, or, go, or like, you know, uh, like a, like a magic Eagle will show up and, uh, or the, yeah, <laughs> the Eagle will show up. The, the, the Eagle magic. will show up. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> there again, it's, it's this one of these, and I don't know, you know, again, in terms of why, not just why Campbell chose to include it, but why he recognized it in all these stories. Uh, I think like, it's almost like when we hit that resolution, it's almost, it's like a fitting thing. Like it has to be that way. And maybe again, maybe it's just a reflection of how the hero has changed where those same trials that he or she had to face on the first journey because they've been so changed they they don't have the same resonance to the person does that make sense no i I think so and i it's an interesting question of whether or not it's just kind of practical um Mm -hmm. or if it's if it's really like metaphysical like there's actually a, a reality to it a patterned reality where having achieved uh the you know apotheosis and the ultimate boon and uh you know you know doing the refusal to return thing but then going back uh, is it is it true to reality that the way home is simply less hard than the journey away from home or is it is it just a a kind of practical storytelling device right we can probably dig into that more like uh but you know and I would even say, I don't even think they have to contradict each other. I would say the practical flows from the metaphysical, like you were saying. 
it's almost like we as the the reader or the viewer it is fitting to us it makes more sense because of what we've seen how we've seen the character change you know mm-hmm. um so then there's the the rescue from without the crossing of the return threshold uh which crossing of the return threshold again just like the crossing of the first threshold was so big and so impactful crossing of the return they're going back as changed people so even though the place that they're going back to is the same so to speak they're viewing it with different eyes and so it has that same impact on the character because of who they are and so the and like i said even though they're going back to the same place conceivably or or the same environment whatever that happens to be that uh, uh and then the it reminds me of a uh, you know uh, this is kind of a wonky application but maybe not you know gk chesterton's famous um you know reference to coming to catholicism he said uh you know that he he went out uh from the shore and uh, he was using an analogy in this in this context here where a, a british person leaves england in a boat and he travels around and he doesn't realize it but he he gets lost in the ocean and comes upon uh, a fantastic island that really blows his mind and he thinks it's awesome and it turns out mm. that he's just returned back to england it's just that mm. now he sees it with fresh new eyes um that that's kind of what you said just reminds me of that kind of chestertonian kind of reference to uh, and a lot of people who would be described as not converts but reverts would say something similar where it's like oh i was born and raised you know catholic uh and i imbibed all of this went to catholic school or received the sacraments or whatever but it wasn't until looking on with adult eyes or with an adult understanding where i was actually pursuing it for myself and not because mom or dad was making me and so they see the church not just as something imposed but now like you said they see you know, England, um, in a, in a new way, they see it more as home, you know, not just an absence makes the heart grow fonder either. Right. But they're actually seeing it in a new way. I, I can almost imagine that, uh, it's almost like planet of the apes sort of inverts that or like subverts <laughs> it because they have the crossing of the return threshold, which, you know, it's kind of the big twist at the end. And again, um, the, it's been around for like 50 yeah, years. Spo- spoiler alert. One. So yeah. Uh, but <laughs> they they came back to earth right or they they came back to earth just however many years in the future and so it's not even i mean it's in a sense it was looking at it with fresh eyes and he didn't realize it until you have that final famous scene where he sees the statue of liberty but uh that was that's obviously huge for for the character if you don't know what we're talking about folks go find yourself charlton heston's planet of the apes 1968 or something like that Stop this podcast and go watch that movie. You may oh, so you're not so you're not talking about the uh, was it Tim Burton and Mark Wahlberg? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the fa- I remember seeing that as a as a middle schooler in theaters. Uh, you know the makeup effects and, were awesome. I'll, I'll say that much. The the makeup effects. I think it's. Thick. I think it's one of those things where, you know, we might just have to be like, we just might have to be the trolls who have those hot takes about movies that everybody hates. I know we've had <laughs> private conversations about uh, how I would just, you know, tell people, oh yeah, the final season of Game of Thrones is my favorite or, oh, I, I love the Hobbit movies. Yeah. And are you sure you a, want to uh, <laughs> alienate our audience uh, just yet, Mike? No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, well, you know what, folks, he's got screwy ideas. Fortunately, the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes is probably such a like obscure reference at this point. I mean, even that's what that's (laughs) more obscure than the 1960s Heston flick. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think it came. Uh, I think I was like 99 or 2000. Uh, You know, listen, it's got its it's got its merits, but largely it's garbage. I, um, so, okay, we have the Master of Two Worlds, which there again, I, sorry to keep us, keep us moving along. Uh, this is not meant to be a three hour, three hour long uh-huh. uh, podcast, or at least three hour episode. But right. uh, we have Master of Two Worlds, which there again, this, this is something that shows the change in the hero, but it's an essential part that he or she can't just be the master of this world where they conquered the bad guy, conquered the enemy. They have to be a master of home too. And so they have to have this kind of foot in both camps, which if we want to look at this theologically, like this is one of the fitting elements, not just the necessary elements, not just because the church says so, or because the Bible proves it, but this is one of the fitting human elements of 
the two divine natures of Jesus, the human nature and the divine nature, because this shows his master of two worlds. This is why he can connect, Jesus can connect on that mythological level as much as he can on the historical level. Does that kind of, and I know we haven't talked about that separately, Jacob, but you know, isn't that, I mean, I just think that's such a fascinating and important element when we start to look at the, and we're going to spend some more time looking at the gospels quote unquote mythologically and what that means in kind of our next segment, probably our next episode, but keep exploring that further. No, it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole, uh, conversation to itself. Right. But, um, you know, early, early church fathers, famously St. Irenaeus, uh, have this concept of recapitulation. Um, and that's a nice foreshadowing for the next episode, by the way. Right. <laughs> I guess I'll try not to give too much away. But the basic idea um, inherent to ancient Christianity as such is, is that Jesus had to, had to embody all aspects of the human life. He, he had to journey through all aspects of humanity, if you will. Up until death. He had to be one born under the law, right? I mean, we can look at this both and element in pretty much every aspect of Jesus. And like I said, that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves because that's what our whole next segment or next episode is going to be about. But yeah, the master of two worlds, like this is, this is so important, not just on a theological level, but on a human level. Like that's the whole point of this kind of podcast is to connect the theology and the humanity. You know, which we we both recognize is already there. It's not like that connection's ever been severed, but it's maybe been severed in the modern mind or severed in the mind that isn't ordered towards that. Well, and I do think that um, you know our Christology is a little lacking nowadays, Mike. <laughs> and so um, maybe one of the things that uh, the conversations we have will be to continue to flesh out. No pun intended. Um, the, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the reality of, of what the incarnation was and, and how it is this quote unquote mythic reality for everybody that, that we all are living through, frankly, and that's well, some deep and, stuff to get into it. And we're going to say this probably 5,000 times by the end of this podcast, but mythological is not the opposite of historical. It's not the opposite of real. It's not the opposite of truthful. Mythological is a subset of whatever is true. Some To say something is mythological is not to deny its, like I said, historicity, its veracity, any of those sorts of things. Is that maybe, am I too bold in that, Jacob? Or I feel like you're going to be right on with me on that one. No, I, I totally agree with you. I, we have a, a post-enlightenment concept of what myth means. Um, and in a lot of ways, the, the concept of myth, as we use it, as we use it in the modern age, is um, considered, it, it's like a, a synonym for for fake yeah. or, or whatever. Okay, so... Um... Just because, like I said, we want to, I want to spend a lot more time on the specific biblical elements and how it connects in our next segment. We're going to go to our last subset of the return, which is the freedom to live, which there again, this is, this is that final element of, or the final stage of the hero's journey where the hero has shown that he or she has conquered both worlds, conquered the, the big challenge, um, but then has also been able to come back and they show it's it's kind of that epilogue scene it's that epilogue that shows that they live happily ever after um and freedom to live uh you know plays with that idea or, or is able to it's very um broad in how that can include it um do they live happily ever after in the lord of the rings mike <laughs> it's a loaded question well, they, they do eventually, right? I mean, ultimately, whether if you're talking like the end of going to the Grey Havens, if what you're talking about is the, the scouring of the Shire, is that uh, kind of what you were the, kind of the, hinging the, on? Or the unhealed wound, you know? Uh, well, Frodo okay, so... returns home, does he? Well, and that, you know what? You actually bring up a really, um, a really important point that I think is worth exploring, which is the... So we have the, the human connection, right? That this is a reflection of how humans have told stories or mythology for so long. But that sort of precludes or is before the infusion of grace into these stories. So 
yeah, we can have the, on the human level, happily ever after, even though, and you know, it's funny you bring up the wound not healing, right? Because where do we see the wound still present, even though it's quote unquote happily ever after, right? We have uh, Jesus who uh, keeps the wounds. This is a Jesus and, reference. <laughs> so well, Frodo having a Jesus reference, I feel like that's a, that's kind of a softball, right? But yeah, yeah. Hey, but, hey, but that's don't actually consume anything on this audience, all right? Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're the whole crew here. So, Maybe um, some people have just now picked up on that, Mike. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so um, we can always be, I mean, we can always be coy and then we'll just, you know, take it out or we'll, we'll edit something in or, or whatever. But, um, but no, what you bring up, though, the whole, like, how do we kind of grapple with that happily ever after that most stories have had even if it's not the most satisfying ending or oh yeah the the person is still sad at the end even though something was resolved is that's sort of where the nature and grace lives right that's where the whole nature and grace um almost call it like a symbiotic relationship where it's not like one is imposing itself on the other grace doesn't replace nature but it builds upon what's already there and not even building upon like you have the foundation and then you build levels upon it because that's kind of an artificial building. It's almost like grace is able to pull out from what was already within it. Or like that scene uh, in The Great Divorce uh, where you got the little lizard on the shoulder and then, you know, the, the angel crushes the lizard and it turns into a horse, right? So, like, grace takes the raw material and it doesn't erase it. It, it transforms it, right? But nothing ever truly, yeah, so... you know, gets replaced or, you know, goes away. So, and this, this is still somewhat of a debated topic um, within Catholic theology of like where exactly or how does, exactly does this look? Because you almost don't want to like dismiss the importance of grace by saying, oh, we by our human nature are created for imperfect knowledge of God or imperfect relationship with God, which we would even recognize a person apart from baptism, whether you want to talk about Socrates, Plato or Aristotle they can come to just by the the nature of their intellect some imperfect knowledge of god and even even a baptized person even a, a baptized person can come to you know imperfect knowledge because even though it's being presented to us whether you want to say it's perfectly from the scriptures or whatever i mean it's divinely inspired from the scriptures our level of understanding of it is still going to be conditioned right whether it's conditioned by our humanity conditioned by sin whatever um, but is it still innate and are you taking away the importance of grace by saying that we have something within us? And that's where you get into the whole, you know, humans are made in the image and likeness of God. And you'll have some theologians who want to push that. And, and I would say like, it's a good thing that they want to keep pushing that not to the level of heresy or anything, but that's, that's how you move our understanding. That's how doctrine develops is by being able to kind of push that envelope or push those boundaries within the limits of church teaching. Well, and, and you know, there's a great book by an Orthodox monk called um, The Tao of Christ. And, um, you know, he's it's a reference to Lao Tzu or Lao Tzu or however you pronounce his name, mm -hmm. different pronunciations. Uh, and so this is, you know, you brought up Socrates or, or Plato or Aristotle, but uh, it's a truly, the belief is that you can look at what other, you know, profound thinkers throughout history and even in different cultures. Um, and it would be, it would be weird if we couldn't see Christ because mm -hmm. Christ is truly present, you know, in filling all things uh, and everything, um, every human reflects it. So, um, you know, and it, it's not some kind of wishy-washy, uh, you know, subjective or, or uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, Mike? All, all roads lead to, to the same end. Like relativistic? Yeah, relativistic? Is yeah. that kind of what you're... It's not, that's yeah. not the word. It starts with an S. It's such an obvious word, too. But uh, Subjectivism? No, I said that one. It's, uh, but basically, it's like the coexist bumper sticker. <laughs> you know, okay. like... Uh, it's not that. I'm not I'm not advocating that uh, all paths are equal. 
Syncretism. Syncretism. That's the one. There's yeah. the word of the. We'll, we'll edit. We'll edit out the hemming and hawing, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, I'm not. I am not advocating for some kind of wishy-washy syncretism. I am merely pointing out that Christians have always understood that Christ is everywhere, um, and we we refine um, and we find Him um, in all kinds of stories throughout histories and cultures and whatnot and philosophies. Well, and this isn't just like our genius reflection on this. This you can well, actually I, have I made this. Stuff. A, I, I totally, I, I'm the one that figured this out. Mike. So, so there's a, there is a concept in uh, Christian history, Christian theology, which is called the seeds of the word. And you see this going back all the way to one of the earliest Christian writers, thinkers, um, uh, evangelists in St. Justin Martyr. And St. Justin Martyr talks about how, you know, he was somebody, he was coming from a pagan philosophical background and he converted to Christianity, sacramental Christianity, hierarchical Christianity, precisely because like Jacob was saying, he saw Christ everywhere, but he saw it in hidden or, um, shadows in hidden ways or in shadows, but he saw it fulfilled ultimately through the church. And so, um, we have a couple of works by St. Justin Martyr called the dialogue with Trifo, which is actually where you get the phrase seeds of the word. Um, but then we have a couple of his apologies when he was brought before the Roman governor before his execution. And that's why he's called Justin Martyr. But this is where, again, even though you'll have examples in the New Testament of St. Paul and St. Peter, especially talking about the, um, the ancient poets or talking about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant being fulfilled in Christ, it's in a lot of these Gentile converts where they were able to take their, whether it was mythological or pagan or philosophical background, and philosophy was not something identified with much of Revelation you know, and, and really there were even some early Christians who wanted to separate those two ideas of you have revelation or, or grace, and then you have philosophy or nature, human nature. But St. Justin saw the connection between those two. And like I said, he described it as there were seeds of the word everywhere. And that's all really, when we talk about Joseph Campbell, when we talk about ancient myths, when we talk about uh, pre-Christian myths or post-Christian myths, right? That's all the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is a post-Christian mythology, right? And who are the who are the Avengers but the new pantheon? And just like St. Justin was able to recognize seeds of the word in all of those pre-Christian mythologies, and like you were talking about with the um, Christ the Eternal Tao, which even C.S. Lewis talks about that in, I think it's Abolition of Man, or maybe it's Mere Christianity. Yeah, he, uses he talks Tao. about the Tao. Yeah, he uses Tao as his reference point because he doesn't want people to get tied up in thinking that he's uh, being a Western chauvinist. <laughs> well, and you know what's what's interesting too is that um, C.S. Lewis uses it more in terms of morality, right? He talks about the Tao as like the natural law, yeah. but it doesn't even have to be reduced to just morality. It was something that you can see in all aspects of human nature. To be honest, it might even be the abolition of man, where uh, Lewis talks about mountains being fundamentally masculine and and uh, you know whatever the reference he was for for women. But it, it, it is it's it's and you're right that he was talking about morality. But I think that he was using the term morality, frankly, as just a, an easy reference point for a mass audience. Mm. But I think the heart well, and he was talking about the yeah the moral argument for God, so that was kind of his. Well, and um, and but the heart the heart I you know I earnestly believe that the heart of um, what he was getting at was something that wasn't merely confined to simple ethics, right? And I think that Lewis knew that yeah. when he was writing that book, and I think that. Oh yeah, he was somebody who was well versed in mythology apart from yeah any of his you know and again we we didn't even talk about this yet but i mean that's what it was tolkien and lewis's love of mythology that ultimately led to uh lewis's conversion mm -hmm. no absolutely not just to not just to a moral way of life but to the whole christian thing well and he never lost his love of those those pagan myths right um and i you know if i thought that christianity meant i couldn't enjoy star wars um, I would be sad. 
<laughs> but I don't think that. I, you know, I, I think that um, I, I love stories. I've always loved stories, uh, and there's great stories from all over the world and all throughout history. Um, and we have a a big God, um, and He's found uh, everywhere. And it's not an excuse for the bad elements in those stories. And uh, we're not going to sit here and, and, you know, pretend like there's not some bad stuff out there. Uh, but uh, I think the spirit of what we're describing here is the idea that God isn't pigeonholed into uh, just the approved literature, <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. of, of whatever this culture says or that culture says. My my students are always shocked when I tell them that uh, one of the best depictions of one of the arguments for God's existence I've actually found in a Rick and Morty episode. And we're actually, we have, again, that's on the docket. It's on the, uh, the big master plan for a future episode that I keep hinting at, all these future episodes. But not, they're first shocked that I have watched Rick and Morty in the first place, but also the fact that there's actually, and again, unbeknownst to or, or totally... Um, uh, unexpected or unintentionally put in by the show's writers, by the show's creator, there is a very strong argument for the existence of God in, in this episode. And so you're going to find it right? If you have the tools to look for it, if you have the right, you know, if you have your um, telescope wait, wait, adjusted, right. if you have, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear Mike. That was really clever. Did you just make that up? <laughs> I, yeah, that? I, 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 I think I did. That's probably that's yeah. probably uh, Jacob original. You might want to get that trademarked. Uh, yeah, probably. So, so like I said, we've we've teased a lot of things, and we're actually coming up to um, the point where we kind of have a nice break in this episode. We're going to come back. Our next episode is going to be talking about where do we see this specifically in the Bible? So we've kind of gone through our introduction of what is the hero's journey? What does it look like? We've used a lot of examples, some from the Bible already that we've teased, some from um, ancient and modern works of literature or ancient and modern mythologies. And now we're going to be looking specifically, how was how were the Gospels mythological? And not that that goes against their historicity, not that we're not trying to say the resurrection didn't happen or Jesus didn't exist, exist, but how do the stories of Jesus fulfill these human mythological elements? Yeah, so thanks, Jacob, and yeah. thanks to all those who joined us this hour. Goodbye, folks. We hope it was fun and beneficial for you. Please subscribe to the Voyage Podcast so you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We hope you'll join us for our next episode as we continue our discussion on the hero's journey. Thanks for listening to Voyage Podcasts. The Voyage Podcast is a production of Voyage Comics and Publishing, which seeks to create exceptional entertainment informed by Catholic values that inspire people to live a heroic life. Voyage Comics seeks to advance truth and beauty found in powerful stories. To learn more, visit voyagecomics.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 